morning, everyone. It's uh, spring break, and I'm excited for all those who had a chance to get away, but I'm probably more excited that you chose to be here today. Thank you for doing that. We're in week two of our series called uh, Forgotten Christianity, and I'm, we're going to be talking about this morning about uh, the early church practices, what they did, how they conducted themselves uh, collectively, and we're going to talk about what that looks like in the 21st century as well. So I'm really enjoying the start of this series. If you weren't here last week, you need a little bit of information uh, so let's, uh, let's continue today as we talk about Forgotten Christianity. Again, thanks for being here. This series is primarily an, an intellectual study, a growth series, if you will. We want to gain wisdom and knowledge as well as application. So we want to understand uh, uh, more perfectly uh, through the lens of church history what the church has looked like so that we don't get off base along the way as we continue to hand off the gospel, hand off the responsibility of church, of, of, of gathering together in each generation. We need to hand this off well so that we don't get off base. If you get off base, then there is eventually a need for a reformation and we don't necessarily want to go through the reformation again. And we want to do this handing off right as, we, as, we, as best we can. And so if you weren't here last week, if you're new this week, let me just give you a quick uh, uh, a moment to, to just get caught up with us as we think about this, uh, this, this forgotten Christianity. Last week we talked about a, a, a document called the Didache. The Didache is extra biblical. That is to say that it is not a part of the 66 books of scripture. We call that the canon of scripture. It is not inspired like the, uh, the other writings of the New Testament and it's not authoritative like the Bible is in our lives. And so I don't want us to think for a moment that we're elevating the Didache to the standard of scripture because it doesn't belong there. Uh, the Didache though is an early, early document document in church history, and the, the, the basic consensus of scholars um, uh, is that this document was a letter compiled by the, by the disciples, by the apostles, and it was distributed throughout the Roman Empire to churches who are called Gentile churches. In other words, churches outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, uh, that, had, that had been started through Paul's ministry as he, as he spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And so this letter was for the churches in these Gentile areas to better understand how to do church, how to gather together, how to meet together, and what some expectations should be for the church when they meet together. So uh, that's what we kind of got started with last week. And last week we talked about the whole idea of, of, of the apostles embracing or placing a high value both on generosity and accountability. Uh, remember, and we laughed about this, but, but the apostles said if someone receives a gift from the church and you find out they don't use that money appropriately, then you should bring them before a body of people and you should make them give an account for how they spent that money. <laughs> we laughed about that because Joe was on stage with me last week and we were having a conversation. Right? That's a, that's a high view of accountability that they would be willing to say, no, you're not going to be, be misusing the funds that, uh, uh, or the resources that God has entrusted to you through the church. It's a big, big deal. And so we talked about the importance of the church holding people accountable, holding all of us accountable. Now, the truth is, is we're not going to have someone on stage uh, anytime soon giving you an account. There's other means and measures to do that, but having a high view of accountability is important. It's not just generosity, but it's also accountability attached to generosity. Um, and so uh, I think, honestly, as I thought about last week's message, I think that that is a huge, huge draw point for people. If, if people know that you're handling well what they entrust to you, they're going to be willing to entrust more to you. I think somewhere in Scripture, Jesus talks about that as well. And so I hope that our church embraces this. Well, in that same line of thinking, as we look back and learned about generosity and accountability, let's take another step forward and learn about two more practices in the church that maybe we have, maybe we have missed 
this just a bit as we've moved forward over the last 2,000 years. I want to celebrate before we do that, the church is doing a lot of things right. We ought to celebrate that for 2,000 years the church has been doing the same things which are right, which is worship and teaching and discipleship and, and reaching out and, 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 and caring for people who are in need and fellowshipping together, meeting together. We eat together and uh, those things are good to do. Uh, but let's talk about what, uh, maybe, maybe where we missed something just a bit. All right, so the Didache is broken up into chapters and verses much like the Bible is. And so we, we studied chapter one last week. Uh, uh, let's take a huge step forward. I'm going to skip uh, like the next four or five chapters and let's get into chapter six. And so basically what happens between chapter two all the way to chapter six is that the disciples are teaching uh, the first century church or the early church about the two ways of life. There's a way of life and there's a way of death. There's two different roads, two different paths. And the next three, uh, three or four chapters that unfold uh, explain that in some depth. And I'm not going to go over that today. You're welcome to go online and Google Didache. You can pick that up if you need help uh, with the word Didache. This is, this is the introduction, the Lord's teaching. This is Didache right here. Google that and look at, look at those chapters on your own. It's worth reading. Let's skip over to chapter 6 though because something interesting happens in chapter 6. So I want to pick up the story in chapter 6 and I want to talk to you about two things today. Number one, I want to talk to you about baptism. And number two, I want to talk to you about the Eucharist or what's called the Lord's Supper. Uh, these are interesting, interesting uh, uh, conversations that we're going to glimpse into in the first century. Now, I, I'm a pastor. I studied theology in college. I have a minor in Greek. And so I think some of this is funny. I recognize you may not. So I'm going to laugh a little bit about some of this. And will you just give me a courtesy laugh if you don't think it's really funny? Would you do that this morning? Is that okay? You already did it. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. So I, I want to just think about the practical reality of the, of the church, of the disciples, of the apostles in teaching the first century church or the early church how to do this thing we call gathering together. So the disciples are saying, and this is chapter 7, and this is verse 1 of chapter 7, uh, and concerning baptism, now what is baptism? Baptism is this sign, uh, this public sign, this public display of faith. It is that I have, I have placed my faith in Christ and I am willing to publicly identify with Christ. Baptism includes water, and we'll see in just a moment there's different ways in which that's carried out. Baptism includes water and it is, a, it is an outward demonstration of the, of the faith, the inward decision I made to follow Christ. So, so concerning this event where someone is going to publicly profess Christ through baptism, concerning this event, in this manner, baptize. When you have gone over these things... Now, I've studied this, and I'm not exactly sure what the apostles are trying to say in this, in this section of this, this verse. It could either mean when you have gone over the things I'm about to tell you... Or it could mean when you have already shared chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 with this individual who's about to get baptized. The natural reading in my understanding would be when you have gone over the two ways that we've just talked about, then you can baptize. In other words, make sure you have told this individual or these individuals who are getting baptized, make sure you have taught them the two ways before they identify publicly with Christ. That's a natural reading of a text, although it could mean something about the, 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 the verses to come. This is what he says to do. When you've gone over these things, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in running water. 
Now, just for a moment, for those of you who like a good theological discussion or a doctrinal debate, it's very clear to me early on that oneness doctrine, the oneness doctrine that, that exists in some Pentecostal circles, wasn't a part of the, of the church in the, uh, in the early days of the church's experience because oneness Pentecostal believes you baptize only in the name of the Son or in Jesus. It's very clear in the first century church or in the early church, they baptized in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But notice they they preferred running water baptize them identify publicly at the creek go down to the river go down to the water baptize them in running water now there's some significance in that that when you when you get baptized you know the sins just kind of roll down the water and you don't have to stay in your sins and there's some powerful imagery there but but baptize in running water now look I like the disciples they're very practical men right verse number two if you don't have running water, then baptize in some other kind of water that you have, all right? <laughs> Whatever you have. I mean, just the baptism needs to happen, right? And I love this part. If you're, if you're not able to use cold water, use warm. Like, that's backwards from 21st century Christianity, right? They wanted it to be cold. <laughs> you're shivering. They wanted the water to be running. But if you didn't have that scenario, then warm water that's kind of stagnant is perfectly fine as well. And I go like this, because that's exactly what we do at our church. Man, we warm it up. And it's just right there in that tub together. So this works. Thank, thankfully, we haven't got that wrong. That's pretty good to know that uh, we're doing this okay. All right, so it gets more practical. Verse number three. And if you have neither, now this was interesting to me. You used to pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is interesting. And, and what, we, what we gather from this, this verse um, is the idea that even when they baptized by immersion or going all the way under the water, generally speaking, they were baptized three times. To, to, to be dipped, if you will, or immersed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So baptism in the first century or so happened three different times. And this way they were baptized all three times. So it was thrice baptized. Here we see that if you don't have running water and you don't have cold or warm water that's stagnant or deep enough to be baptized in, then pour water on their head. Now, um, there are some denominations today that, that, that practice sprinkling or pouring of water. And, and, and I would say to you that one of the things that comes out as you read the Didache, as you think about the, the, the disciples, is they recognize that the gospel is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And some parts of the Roman Empire, uh, aren't, uh, there, there's not a ton of water available in some of these different places. There, there, it's very possible that there would, there would have been individuals who received Christ... And there would not have been literally a place for them to be baptized in deep enough water. And so the, the disciples are practical people. Uh, this is a really important point. It's not the major point today, but the important point is, is, that, is that, and Paul makes this point as well in Scripture, that it's not the circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart. In other words, this matter is a matter of the heart. The practical method that you use is important, but don't get hung up on the practical message when the heart change has taken place. That's the, really the heart of the disciples. Now, we practice at Solid Church baptism by immersion in warm, non-running water. So we fit that criteria and we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask them to cover their nose and raise their hand and we slam them all the way under the water. Now, I don't know if you watched on Facebook or not, but there is literally a guy who slams them into water. We're not going to practice that form of it. That works for the wrestler, not for us, all right? Verse number four, the story goes on to say that this is really interesting. And before baptism, the one baptizing... Chuck Burton, and the one to be baptized should fast, as well as any others who are able. 
And you should instruct the one being baptized to fast one or two days before. Now, this is interesting. The disciples wanted baptism to be done in certain modes, but also the disciples wanted the, the, the one being baptized and the one to be baptized to wait for a couple of days. Now, this makes sense to me if the verse, if the verse I just read in, in verse number one is talking about the, the material previous to chapter six. In other words, if the disciples needed to make sure that the one being baptized understood what it meant to follow Christ and understood the two ways, then it would make sense to me that they would say, and don't rush into that decision. Make sure you wait and make sure you understand what you're doing and then you can be baptized. Fast for a couple of days and then we can baptize you. And the one who's going to baptize you should also fast for a couple of days, right? Now, I wanna be careful this is not inspired text. This is the recommendation of apostles to the church. It is not equal to Scripture. We do know in Scripture that in the book of Acts, for instance, people were, were they received Christ by faith, they made a profession of faith, and they were immediately baptized in water. It is not to say that there is a profession of faith and there has to be a long, long wait. The disciples are after something different, and I'll show you what that is in just a second. But the disciples wanted, in this, in this account at least, for them to wait to make sure that they were ready to be baptized. It's important and we'll see why in just a moment. All right, so to fast one or two days before. Uh, so uh, Chuck, if you can hear me today, um, uh, Saturday, Sunday, no food for you. <clears throat> now, this is, this, to me, this is hilarious what happens next. So this is the end, uh, this is the end of chapter, uh, uh, I believe, of chapter uh, 7. So uh, look with me at this next part. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is the only part we're going to read in chapter 8. And let not your fast be with those of the hypocrites. For they fast on Monday and Thursdays, and you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. That's hilarious. All right, so, so what's the point here in this, in this, in this teaching? Uh, to me, it sounds petty if you don't appreciate what's really going on, Right? It's almost competitive nature here. Well, they fast on these two days. We'll fast on different days, right? What's actually going on here is that the disciples are trying to guard against some first century um, uh, 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 heresies or even first century uh, appeal of old covenant or of Judaism. Um, the disciples here understand that in Christ we are freed from uh, the, the, the legalistic requirements that some people were placing on first century uh, uh, individuals. The disciples understand that if we, if we attach ourselves to Judaism, which is an old covenant idea, that we miss the grace of Jesus Christ. And all that simply means this, that, that it's very likely that in the first century when this document is written, that those who would be uh, still connected to Judaism or an old covenant religion, that they would fast on Mondays, which would be the second day of their week, uh, and Thursdays. But the Christians should fast on these two different days to separate themselves from Judaism or from an old covenant picture. It was a coming out of the old covenant and into the new covenant idea. This is, this is likely the reason why the disciples called them to fast on different days. No, this wasn't competitive uh, in nature necessarily, but actually a drawing out or a, or a, or a separating out of two different, uh, two different religions or two different movements. All right, so very interesting. In chapter 9, the story continues. 
So the, the disciples lay out a few more things about fasting and prayer in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, then the disciples talk about the Eucharist or communion or what we call the Lord's Supper. And this is what the disciples encouraged the first century church to do. Or these Gentile churches of the Roman Empire. Give thanks like this. All right. Verse number two, it says this. For the, for, for the, uh, excuse me. First, for the cup, we give thanks to you. This is how you should respond. We give thanks to you, our Father, for your holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. Glory to you forever. Now, what the disciples are explaining here is that when you take communion, what you should do first is that you should give thanks to God for Jesus, and they describe it in a very powerful way. The disciples describe it as the holy vine of David. Now, there's some debate about what the disciples are trying to, trying to communicate here, but generally speaking, it's accepted that what the disciples are trying to get the, the first century church to embrace is that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic word from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, which says, From the root or shoot of Jesse, there would come about the Messiah. In other words, Jesus was not just some man. Jesus was not just some individual. He is the fulfillment of the one to come. He is the Messiah. He's from the line of David, which is the line uh, of, the, of the king of Israel. And of his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, there will be no end. So when you drink the, the, the wine or of the vine, and we use juices, Solace Church, not real wine, sorry. When you drink of the vine or of this juice, remember that Jesus shed his blood in demonstration that he is the one who takes away the sins of the world. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Right? And then he goes on to say in verse number 3 of chapter 9, concerning the broken bread, that is when we take that piece of bread, concerning this, we give thanks to you, our Father, for the life and knowledge that you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. Glory to you forever. Jesus would say about himself, I am the bread of life. That is to say, there's nourishment in me. And what the disciples wanted to make sure that the church understood is that Jesus was not just a teacher, he was the teacher. Jesus was not just one rabbi among many, he is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. This elevation of who Jesus was was a big deal in the first century church, and it certainly should be as well to us today. Now, verse number four is really interesting as well. As this broken bread was scattered, it's going on to talk about the bread. As the broken bread was scattered over the hills and was brought together, becoming one, so gather your church from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for you have all power and glory forever through Jesus Christ. It's a powerful imagery. The disciples are leveraging a first century agricultural idea here. Uh, the, the, the wheat that was grown to make the bread... Is, is the imagery here. In other words, all of these individual uh, uh, heads of wheat or grain are individually placed all throughout a section of land, but they're harvested together and brought together to form one loaf of bread or one piece of bread. And this is the bread that we eat together in the Lord's Supper. And the powerful picture here is that the church, although it may be scattered, is one. And that we're not doing things on our own and we're not off in left field and right field, but rather that we are one church, we are the body of Christ united to a common purpose which is to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and holy ghost right 
This is the imagery the first century uh, disciples wanted the church to embrace, that we're all doing this together. We may be in Jerusalem, we may be in some other remote part of the Roman Empire, but we are all one in Christ doing this together. Powerful picture and imagery here. All right, so this is what the disciples lay out for the first century churches in the Gentile Roman Empire. All right, so you would say, wow, thanks for that history lesson. I really appreciate that. Why did I show up on spring break? I knew you were going to ask that question. So let me tell you why. If you're writing things down, I want you to write this down. As you study this text of Scripture, you can go there. Go on to the next slide. I want you to, I want you to see this picture. It is clear that the early church had a high view of authenticity. If you look at these two passages of Scripture, or these two sections of the Didache, what's clear to me is that the early church had a high view of authenticity. Now, I do want to take you to the last verse of this chapter 9. So go back there with me to verse number 5. Notice what happens in the text. The disciples say, do not let anyone eat or drink of the Eucharist or your Eucharist meal except the ones who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For the Lord said concerning this, do not give that which is holy to the dogs. Now, that actually sounds really offensive. In 21st 21st century Christianity, this is not widely talked about. But what the the disciples understood is that when you're going to take the Lord's Supper, when you take communion, it needs to be so out of a heart that's already been submitted to Christ and that has been tested for a period of time so that they're ready to be baptized. Then and only then are they ready to receive the Lord's Supper because someone who takes the Lord's Supper and, 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 and their heart has not been fully submitted to Christ eats to their own peril Paul says in first Corinthians all right so the picture here is is that the first century church had a high high view of making sure that when someone said they were a Christ follower there was evidence in their life that they actually truly have submitted themselves to Christ now this is an important point I'm gonna land on this for a couple of minutes Okay, I want to tell you one of the things that I think the, first, the 21st century ch- uh, church struggles with that we might be able to do a little better job of. I want to take you back, though, for one more moment and give you a little more church history so that you can appreciate what I'm about to say. In the first century church, something very interesting happened. In the first century church, uh, early, early on, the church grew rapidly. And the church enjoyed a season that, they, that wasn't a part of significant persecution. The church met openly in the synagogues. On Sundays, the Jews would meet there Saturdays. The church would meet there on a Sunday because that's the Lord's Day when Jesus rose from the dead. The church enjoyed a a, a period of favor in the community. But not long after this early, early honeymoon stage of the church, the church began to be persecuted significantly. And as a matter of fact, the church began to be persecuted not just by the Jewish community, but also by the Roman community as well. So not only was, were, were, were Christians persecuted, many of them who were Jews persecuted by their own people, but they also faced significant persecution by those who would be called Gentiles. They were receiving it from every side. And what the church did for a period of time is the church went underground. The church was actually underground until, uh, until Constantine made Christianity an official religion in, in, in Rome. The church kind of went underground, so they met in house churches. Now, I know people say this, that the, that the church is not supposed to be a social club. It's not supposed to be the, the golfing buddies where this elite club of people. I know that, but when you study the church in this period of time when they were heavily persecuted, the church actually looked more like a social club than we like to admit. Do you know why? 
Because this is what took place. Do you know the story of when the disciples were overwhelmed with work and they could not get everything done, so they appointed the deacons? Do you remember that from last week? Well, these deacons actually served multiple different purposes and functions uh, when the church went underground. One of the things these deacons did in the early church when the church went underground, or in other words, behind closed doors where no one knew what they, where they were meeting, is there were deacons that guarded the doors into these house churches. And these deacons would not allow anyone into these meetings who was not first known by the rest of the community of believers. Because they would, it was too risky to allow someone that was unknown into their meeting place. In other words, they had a closed door system during this time of significant persecution. And do you know how someone got in? Someone was able to get in if another believer who was already in the group vouched for that individual who was about to come through those doors. In other words, evangelism happened in the workplace and, these, and the gospel went out into the workplace and when the gospel penetrated into the workplace and people were saved and then tested and baptized, then they were allowed into the meeting. Now that's actually backwards because if you are here today and you're a new, new guest and maybe you're here for the first time, you would say you, you, you wouldn't even get in the meeting uh, in the first century church when it was persecuted and heavily, uh, heavily uh, uh, persecuted in this period of time. You would have to know someone who is committed, and you would have to be committed, and then you can get in. Now, why was that the case? Because they were, they were obviously pretty scared during this period of time. They were worried that there would be those who would penetrate the meeting, give away their meeting place, and all of them would be killed for their faith, right? This is just a picture of first century, or early, early first uh, century church, really into the second century as well. And so this is a picture. Now, why is that important? <laughs> because very early on, you can see you're not getting in unless you have proven yourself that you are authentic, you have actually committed yourself first to Christ. Now, I'm thankful that we don't live in the 21st century in a persecuted society. I'm thankful that anyone and everyone can come through those, the, the doors. And the good news about the church today is we welcome that. In the 21st century picture of Christianity, we welcome anyone and everyone who wants to walk through the doors of the church. We welcome that. And if you're new and you're not even a follower of Christ, and maybe this is a whole new experience for you, we welcome that as well. And we're thankful that you chose to come even today. We welcome that. But I think, and here we go, I think one of the dangers of the 21st century church is that we are so committed to numerical growth that we may miss the need to make sure we are calling people to high levels of commitment and we are truly walking with people through the process of the of specifically the early steps of Christianity to make sure that it wasn't just an emotional experience during the service that they said, yeah, Jesus is cool, but they have volitionally given their heart to Christ and they have made the decision to follow him and that we have tested that and we are making sure that when they get baptized that they are ready to publicly identify with Christ because they've in their heart already identified with Christ that's a critical part of the expression of the church I would say to you that the church would do itself a huge favor if we would elevate this idea of we want to make sure that when you say verbally you're following Christ that there's evidence in your life and in my life that that's actually true about us there is a problem in the first 21st century church called nominal Christianity, which simply means that we can show up and say we're Christians, but there's no evidence of that in our life in any way else in our life, and that is not biblical Christianity. When there is true life change because of Jesus and the salvation experience, there is evidence of that in the life of the person as they live out this thing called Christianity in their everyday life. And so I think the church would do itself a huge favor to really embrace this high view of authenticity. We're not perfect. We're not, we haven't fully arrived yet. But we love Jesus and there's evidence of that in our lives. 
The first century church embraced this at a very high level and was evidenced by what they did, all right? So I want to say a couple things about this, and then I want to do this very thing called the Eucharist with you because it's a powerful expression of the church. Um, the, 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 the thing that we do at our church, and I actually like it, but it's given me pause as I've read this, 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 uh, this, this picture here. It's given me pause because at Solace Church, we do spontaneous baptisms, which I like. I like the fact that you can be here, and if you've made a decision to follow Christ, that you can immediately get baptized when we offer those services. I like that. But here's what I don't want you to hear me say. I don't want you to believe about our church, because it's not true, that all we care about is end-of-the-year statistics where we can say we baptized a whole lot of people. Church, you can, you can baptize someone on an emotional experience and that not really be life-changing for them, and we have not done our job as a part of the body of Christ to make sure that the, that the gospel is going forth as it should go forth. I want you to know as as your pastor, I want you to hear my heart. My heart is that the gospel changes you from the moment of salvation until you leave this world through death or Jesus comes back. I do not want us to embrace that Christianity is just some simple emotional experience where you get all teared up and you get all moved in a moment and then there's nothing else behind that. The gospel is transformative because when you hear the word, it changes you. And that may be emotional and it may be just simply a heart change that has no, a whole, not a whole lot of outside emotion. The gospel penetrates into the heart and it changes us when, the, when, when we accept it by faith and do it. In other words, this is what Jesus said. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, or stable is the man, or healthy is the man, who does not just simply hear the word of God, but does it in his life as well. He's the one who builds his house on the rock. And when the winds and storms come, they do not knock it over because there is a foundation, which is Christ, that stabilizes him no matter what. Right? This is the picture of Christianity the first century church embraced, and I hope we embrace it in the 21st century as well. Now, I thought it'd be cool on this spring break. You get to do something no one else has ever done before. We're going to take communion Didache style. I like that. And here's why. Because as I think about this whole idea of taking communion together, for some reason, this is part of this forgotten Christianity thing for me. For some reason, when I take the communion, I can see Jesus on the cross. And I can see this picture of the blood being shed for me. And I can see his body being broken for me. And that's a powerful picture. But I don't know for sure if in my time of taking communion, I connected it to the prophecies. I don't know if I've seen Jesus with his arms stretched out on the cross when I take the Lord's Supper in this picture of of the shoot of Jesse, the king who reigns forever. And of your kingdom, there shall be no I don't know for sure if I've seen Jesus teaching me the way of life as I take communion. That it wasn't just that his body was broken for me and that he literally gave up his physical life for me, but rather he came to this earth to teach me how to live. That's a powerful picture of the work of Jesus. And on the cross, we see that his blood shed is the prophesied blood that was shed. And on the cross, we see that his body given for me was not just an atoning sacrifice, which it was, but it is the picture of the way to life. And so, I want us to do this thing called the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion together this morning. I want to lead you in it. But I want to make sure that we are authentic Scripture is clear on this. 
that as we participate in the Lord's Supper, that this is an action that our hearts need to be prepared for. At Solace Church, we practice what's called open communion. That is to say that anyone and everyone can take communion, but only if you have first received Christ as your Savior. Only if first, this is, this is who you are. This is, this is not just a nominal sense that I like Jesus, he's a pretty good guy, and I came to church, but rather that you've been changed by the gospel, that you are what's called saved, that you have received Christ, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And so we're going to turn the lights down just a little bit in the auditorium. And I don't want to embarrass you and I don't want to call your name out or anything like that. But if we do this communion thing and you don't, you're not sure that, that you're in a place where you can receive communion, I want to in, just in, invite you to just observe. It's perfectly okay if you don't feel like for whatever reason you're in a place where you can receive communion. For those of you who would say, yes, I'm a Christ follower. Yes, I have received Jesus. Yes, I've been saved. Yes, I have been baptized. Yes, I, yes, I am following him. You're not perfect. That's what the cross is about. It's about forgiveness. If that's you here today, I want to give you a moment to pause, to consider the person of Jesus. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Hey, this is Pastor Matt Blair. Thank you so much for taking time to check out our podcast today at solacechurch.com. You know, we realize that it's possible, as you listen to this message today, that God may have spoken to your heart about something. So if you made any kind of spiritual decision, we would love to know about that. You can email us at info at and let us know what happened in your life today. Once again, thank you so much for taking time to check out this podcast.